Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.08, 64 degrees in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University, who just got off a plane from Eastern Europe, uh, if it's still called that, from Lithuania. How are you, sir? Doing well. I got off the plane at 5 o'clock today, so I am freshly back. Wow. Okay, well, listen, as always, and, and you travel you know, often and sort of all over the place, although last time your trip was kind of cut short because of the government shutdown, wasn't it? Correct. Or one of your more recent trips. Yeah, it was in January. Yeah, in January, I, was, I went to Slovenia. I was also supposed to go to Belarus. That one got cut short because of the, the government shutdown. Um, and then... In March, I was in Ukraine, so so I've had the Eastern European World Tour this year so far. Okay, and so tell us about where you were this time and, and what you were doing. Okay, I'm, I was in Lithuania. Um, Lithuania is one of the Baltic countries. It's kind of snuggled between um, east of Poland, um, west of, of Russia, um, and if I were to tell people, um, south of of, of Latvia, that's where it is, right on the right, right on the Baltic Baltic Sea, and I I teach um, um, at a school called uh, uh, Nicholas Ramirez Law School, um, which is in Vilnius, which is the capital. Um, it's part of an exchange program between my school um, and a lot of other schools. Um, so they bring in faculty to teach for like a week or so, mm-hmm. kind of like mini classes. So I was doing that, and also um, as some of the listeners know, when I do these kind of things, I also um, generally give a um, a program for the U.S. Embassy. So I spoke to a bunch of students over at the embassy on Monday. So it was a it was a pretty busy week. And in case you're wondering, I think the the interest in Europe um, in our 2020 presidential race um, maybe is almost as high as it is in the United States. Really? Well, that's I, I'm always so interested to hear you know the, the perspectives and what people are saying, what people are asking you. But they're already focusing on the 2020 race. Yes, and. It's Specifically, what they're concerned about. Again, for people who don't know, Lithuania um, was independent after World War One till World War Two. They were absorbed by the Soviet Union, and then they got their independence um, when the Soviet Union broke up. In fact, Lithuania was the first country to declare its independence um, from the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, um, Russia for them remains a a constant concern and threat. And so I remember the first time I went to Lithuania in 2008, and it was during the presidential election between Barack Obama and John McCain. And the big concern then was they were like, well, is Barack Obama going to be there um, to defend us through NATO if Russia invades? Um, and I said, well, yeah, I, I'm pr-, and, and it was true. I mean, o- Obama was supportive of NATO. But the concern this time is given the comments that Trump has made about NATO um, and about um, what appears to be um, 
his relationship, you know, with Russia, which we're all still trying to figure out what it is. Yes, we are. Yeah, um, they're, they're they're worried. They're worried about the fact that if the Russians were to take any type of aggressive military action against them, would the United States be willing to honor its its NATO commitment? And that's that's the main concern I think that they have. Really, and, and so so they're obviously following that, and obviously the Mueller report. Uh, depending on which way you read the Mueller report, um, you know, didn't say that, that there was any direct collusion right. with the president, but certainly there was an awful lot of contact, and certainly the president's statements um, that have been very favorable to Mr. Putin. Exactly. Uh, have, uh, it sounds like they're raising concerns over there. Yes, and in fact, one of the I did two interviews also, one for well, um, a newspaper um, and one for well, I think uh, radio and. And both of them were concerned about wanting to know more about the Mueller report. And they said they found the Mueller report confusing. Could you explain it? And I said, well, we found the Mueller report confusing <laughs> in the United States, too, and, 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 and trying to, uh, to work through what the report actually said. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Now, I should also mention the fact that um, Lithuania considers the United States to be a very, very good friend um, in in. In the night, right after World War One, we were one of the first countries in the world that recognized their independence. And then during the Soviet era, we never formally recognized um, the Soviet Union's occupation and always considered um, Lithuania, along with the other Baltic countries, to be independent. So the, the, the relationship um, generally is pretty good, and they generally like um, people from the United States. So they're basically trying to figure out what Donald Trump is really all about, which is just like the rest of us. Exactly. So, okay. so, so they have the same perplexity that we do in terms of trying to, again, figure out who he is, what he supports. Um, um, they want to know, of course, also, is he going to get reelected? So that's what I'm saying is that I could have um, moved you, as may to, to Lithuania, put you in <laughs> and one of the television stations there, you know, and, and, and I'll, I don't know, LCCO, Lithuanian, like that, you know, <laughs> and, and you would have been asking practically the same questions um, um, there as you would be asking here. Well, and, and, you know, in one of our earlier segments tonight, we talked with a financial analyst about the, the trade wars with China and the uncertainties it's created in, in the U.S. and even world markets. And, you know, one of the things that he was talking about is, is the unpredictability. And, and yes. no matter where you are, whether you support the president or you don't support the president or you're uncertain, I think most people fall into the either two camps, they support them or they doesn't. You know, you have to agree that he is unpredictable. And I think that's created a lot of people wondering at all levels, whether it's on China policy, foreign policy, right. what's going to happen in the next um, – is it just 18, less than 18 less months than 18 before the months, next election? No, you're absolutely right. Now, the other thing which I noticed this time, too, and this is one of their concerns also, is in their financial district, it must have been a 40-story tall building for Huawei, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Chinese company. Um, and Huawei, yeah. Huawei, yeah. Um, and I, they were, again, one of the um, reporters you know, was kind of doing sort of business issues, too, was – Asking us about the um, the actions that Google was taking, that the Trump administration is taking with wow. China, because I mean this is a um, a major major um, company in Lithuania, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a guess here and say forty percent of the people um, of the people who have cell phones, forty percent of them are that brand. Wow. 
So this is this is a major employer over there, and so they're of course concerned in terms of well, how will the the actions of both Google and and the Trump administration impact a business that has a pretty big footprint in, in Lithuania. Wow. Okay. All right. Listen, we do have to take a quick break. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about is, is the tussle over testimony with William Barr, Mr. Mueller, a, a lot going on there. Uh, there are also a lot of questions that I want to ask you about some of these abortion laws that have been passed recently in other states, all kinds of things going on. So keep it here, folks. More with David Schultz after this on News Talk 830. It is 8-17. Esme Murphy along with uh, – a man who should be very jet lagged. It's an eight hour time difference between here and Lithuania. But I was saying in the break, we were chatting just briefly. Um, you sound very refreshed. Yes. A shower and a walk on a beautiful day like today did it. Yes. And actually, this is one of the nicer days that's happened in the last uh, God knows how long. But my um, was, yeah, my wife was telling me that actually where I was in Lithuania, it was, it was it was uncharacteristically nice. Usually this time of year, it's kind of, let's say, 50s and 60s and raining. Um, it That's was, what we've had. <laughs> yes, it was mostly in the 70s and sunny. It was gorgeous. Wow. Okay. Well, I wish we could we could borrow some of that. Um, let me ask you a lot going on about subpoenas and um, a, a new push, especially amongst progressives, for impeaching Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi saying no, it's not time, but a major war between Nancy Pelosi and, and the president. Um, it is interesting, I think, that Nancy. This is maybe a little bit of a side note here. Nancy Pelosi seems to be somebody who can really get under the president's skin. Um, what do you think is going to end up happening there? It does look like Democrats are holding off, at least the leadership is holding off, with, with a push for impeachment. Yeah, I think they're holding off for a couple of reasons. One, I think they're operating under the assumption that that movements towards impeachment might do more to mobilize the Republican base, that is Trump base, than necessarily the Democrats. And they're looking specifically at what happened when the Republicans tried to impeach Bill Clinton back in the 90s. It kind of backfired. Plus, I think on top of that, I think Pelosi's looking at it saying, listen, even if we impeach him, um, it's going to go down as a straight party line vote um, in the House. It's going to go down as a straight party line vote in the Senate. We're, we're going to lose. Um, and at least one point I've heard. So it could win. It could win in the House, but it would lose in the Senate. Correct. Correct. And you need a two thirds vote in the Senate. And I've heard at least a couple of people argue and say that if the president were to be impeached and then acquitted um, in the Senate, he would use that as vindication. And I don't think the Democrats want to vindicate. But I think the other strategy that's going on at this point is that they're going to keep chipping away with subpoenas, chipping away with um, with um, perhaps contempts of Congress, and and largely they're going to get most of the information that they want. They're going to eventually get the tax returns, and they're going to get they're going to get all that stuff. Do you think? Do you think that they will get? Because I know New York State passed a law yeah. that would allow the state returns, and normally your state returns have your whole income on it. So, you know, you yeah. can glean an awful lot from the state returns. Do, do you think that they will eventually get that? Yeah, they're going to get them. They're going to get them from New York. They're going to they're eventually going to get them from Donald Trump's accountant because there's going to be no way um, at the end of the day they're going to be able to um, um, suppress them. And possibly they will also get them through um, through the Department of Treasury, through the IRS. But they're going to get them. Um, and I think what they're hoping is that by getting those tax records, by, by, by doing the constant pressure that they're putting on the Trump administration, um, either 
perhaps they will eventually get enough information that convinces the American public to go ahead with an impeachment, um, or um, that they want to go ahead, the issue go ahead with an impeachment, or B, um, that it, it leads to a significant mobilization um, of not just the Democrats, but also the swing voters who come out and vote against him in 2020. I think also, I'm just thinking about here on a timing issue here, um, is that if they take several months you know, to fight this out, get the, get the tax records, continue doing the hearings, this would then put the impeachment probably right in the middle of the 2020 presidential race, which potentially could be more damaging. Um, yeah, so, so, I, so I, think it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a cat and mouse game that, again, legally, yeah. the, the law is on the side of Congress. Although, you know, I think that there are a lot of people, you know, for, for, for people going about their, their daily lives, you know, their take on the Mueller report as well. There was nothing there that, that was a crime. Right. It's what's done is done. It's over, which is what Republicans are saying. Um, isn't, isn't there something to that? Or are, are Democrats effective, being effective in, in kind of, as the president accuses them, of dragging it out? Well, I think the Mueller report reaches certain conclusions that I don't think... It's not, I mean, certainly not flattering, uh, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, one, you know, since I teach government ethics classes, I would say that even if he did nothing legally wrong, ethically, there's a whole bunch of problems there in terms of the president's behavior um, that, that one can raise a lot of questions on. But for the Democrats, I think they still believe they can make some political capital out of it. I think they still think there are some issues there. I think they also believe that there are issues that the Mueller report never really covered in terms of potentially tax fraud issues um, that there seems to be some allegations of. I think they're looking at the, the Russian connection in a different way in terms of how Trump may be connected with Russia through um, entities such as Deutsche Bank. Uh, so, so I think they're approaching it different ways. Whether this is going to resonate with the American public, I don't know. But what I think it's being effective at doing is preventing Donald Trump from being able to move his agenda. And I think that's partly what the Democrats are trying to do. Because there's so much focus on this. Yeah. I, you know, I do think it'll be interesting to see the tax returns. The New York Times did have uh, a story. Now it's been a, a few weeks yes. about uh, a period in the late ni- 80s. Right. 1980s and early 1990s, where he was in excess of a billion dollars in debt. Uh, you know, I thought that was interesting, but that was actually really out there. I mean, maybe it's because um, I, I've always read New York newspapers because, you know, as a child, I grew up there. Um, that was very much uh, out in, in in the early 90s that Donald Trump was, was about to go under, and yep. then he was able to kind of pick up the pieces it would be fascinating to see what came after that, right? And if it jives with what he's saying, right? Um, but and he says, "Hey, listen, I used every tax loophole legally." I mean, all of that would be just really interesting to see. It would be. I think the other thing that Donald Trump has to worry about here too is that there seems to be, and again, these are all allegation stages right now. Allegations that, depending on whether it was for tax purposes. Or borrowing money, that he was he was he was changing his claims regarding what his income was, you know, inflating or decreasing it. And the reason why I mention that is that given a lot of the business that he did, uh, um, 
what could be uncovered here could be the basis for some civil lawsuits that could be brought against the president of the United States, maybe perhaps by creditors, maybe by Deutsche you know, Bank. I, I don't know. I'm just sort of throwing this out right. here. And I mention that because the Supreme Court clearly ruled back in Clinton versus Jones, um, back when Bill Clinton was president, that presidents are not immune from civil lawsuits while they're president of the United States. And so I could see a possibility here also where some of this material comes out. Congress doesn't act, but it empowers some private parties um, um, to be able to uh, to bring some cases. And so, so view what's going on now. Again, if I can if I'm overusing the term cat and mouse, I think it's exactly what's going on with Pelosi and Trump is a cat and mouse game where she's doing a pretty effective job of what? Keeping him from being able to do anything except what? Be preoccupied um, almost on a full-time basis with responding to um, um, requests, subpoenas, um, um, and investigations taking place in Congress. Let me ask you, what I know that the president gave William Barr, the attorney general, uh, sort of unprecedented powers to investigate the investigation uh, of the Russia probe. And, and again, even for somebody like me, this all sort of glazes over. How, how big a deal is that? Because there's been a lot of controversy about that. That is pretty significant at this point because of the reason why you brought in a special prosecutor, a special investigator, is because of the independence that that person would have from any political interference with the president um, or the Justice Department. To now have this investigation um, reviewed by the attorney general uh, re- really makes it look like what? that it's, it's really not an independent investigation, um, that there is um, a lot more politics going on. And I think this actually hurts Donald Trump, because if he just sort of walked away from it right now and said, Mueller report vindicates me, walks away, this is what you were saying a few minutes ago here, he looks stronger. The more now he says, we're going to dig into this, we're going to see if there is any type of... Um, um, it, well, it does keep it going. It does keep it going. And, what and, if, and that's his initiative. It keeps it going. That's, that's an interesting way of looking at yeah. it. And, if he conclu- and, and what if, let's say, Barr concludes and says this investigation was, was political, that is by Mueller, then what it does, it basically renders any of the conclusions that Mueller raised um, to be not, you know, invalid, and therefore you're back to square one with the question of, all right, so it wasn't a fair investigation. What would a fair investigation tell us about Trump's involvement with the Russians? And so this is a dangerous move for him to go. And you're saying it could actually backfire. I do. I wow, do. that's interesting. That's, that, that, that's very interesting. Um, all right, well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to do some weather. When we come back, uh, I want to like ask you some questions about some of these abortion rulings whether you think it'll go to the Supreme Court. And they also want to talk about the legislative session, which wrapped up this morning, (laughs) uh, very early this morning. So keep it here, folks. More with David Schultz, just back from Lithuania on News Talk 830. It's 833 in the Twin Cities, chatting with Professor David Schultz, who is literally just back from Lithuania tonight, and he is kind enough to join us here on News Talk 830 WCCO want to ask you about your thoughts about these new abortion restriction laws that are being passed in a number of states. Since the beginning of the year, eight states have passed laws restricting abortion rights in those states. Uh, the one that's gotten the most attention is a, a virtual ban of all abortions. Uh, 
in the state of Alabama. What are your thoughts about what's going on there? And do you think this is going to end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? First off, I, let me explain what the current state of the law is, is that many people have heard of the case of Roe v. Wade, 1973, yes. which said that essentially women have a right to be able to uh, terminate a pregnancy under some situations. That's the basic law. Um, but in a later case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, I think it was, 1991, the court said that in evaluating um, regulations on abortion, the question is, do those regulations place an undue burden upon, um, upon a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy? But the reason why I'm getting at this is that if you understand the framework here, that the law says that women do still have a right to terminate a pregnancy, um, uh, and states can impose some regulations so long as it's not an undue burden, um, that, that gives us that legal framework. Okay. Having said that, um, what we're seeing here is several states um, going at a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, um, in many cases um, eliminating um, either um, an ability of a woman to terminate a pregnancy or placing such significant restrictions on it that it raises the question, you know, is this an undue burden? And so what I think these states are doing um, is is trying to set up a challenge. They're looking at the current Supreme Court and thinking that this may be their best shot ever um, in terms of, of a conservative court that may be willing to overturn um, Roe versus you know Roe versus Wade um, or or find if they don't actually overturn Roe versus Wade that these regulations don't place an undue burden and therefore uphold um, pretty significant restrictions. So I think this is the this is the the strategy at this point to 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 try to get a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Having said that, first I think given the election results in 2018, I think these are the kind of restrictions um, that are going to heavily mobilize women across the United States in ways that. Um, we haven't seen mobilized on the abortion issue because I think many women always sort of took it for granted that the courts were going were to be there. So I think, again, this is another issue that it may be overplaying by some conservatives. Um, but second, I am not persuaded that the Supreme Court takes these cases. I think they're really OK. And, and that's and explain how that works, because I think I think um that that's an important thing. They only take a tiny percentage of, of the cases that that are appealed to them, right? Correct. There's approximately three and a half thousand or so cases a year in which lower in which plaintiffs ask the Supreme Court to hear um, a case on appeal from a lower court or from a state Supreme Court. They only accept about eighty cases per year, so it's an incredibly small percentage that they actually take. You know, what's what's eighty out of four thousand? We're looking at you know just maybe a percent or so in terms of the number of cases that they take. So the odds are generally against you. Um, second, I think this is a court, especially with John Roberts, who I think is very very worried about whether the Supreme Court is looking politicized. I think he's going to look for ways. To um, not take these cases, could, could he? Could he? I mean, could the court theoretically say this is this is settled law? They could we say, we they, decided this in 1973. Yeah, what I'm thinking is likely to happen is that right now 
um, these these laws across the country that are being passed, Alabama and so forth, they clearly violate Roe versus Wade. And I'll go out on a limb and say, as a law professor, they do place an undue burden upon a woman's ability to be able to terminate a pregnancy. Um, the lower courts are bound by current Supreme Court opinion. Um, they will have to strike these laws down as unconstitutional. Be- um, because, because of that Supreme Court ruling. That's, correct. That's... Correct. So that, um, and so that what I think Alabama and other states are hoping is that, yeah, they know these cases are going to be struck down um, at the lower court level, hoping that they eventually get appealed up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court then takes it, and their hope is that by a 5-4 opinion, um, the Supreme Court um, upholds the lower court restrictions. Um, I am, again, not convinced that the Supreme Court will take um, we'll take these cases and they'll try to find ways of avoiding them. Um, I certainly don't think they're going to overrule Roe. Um, I've argued and other people have argued that there are ways of narrowing Roe if you're opposed to abortion without actually overturning Roe. Um, so, so, I, so I think it's going to be a little bit more complex than many of these individuals think who are passing these laws. But I think especially the political backlash, I think, is, is pretty significant. And two, no legal guarantee that they're going to get what they want out of this. Right. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that you talked about the political backlash because uh, on Tuesday of this past week, I actually covered the rally at the Capitol and uh, that was against these laws right. in other states and it was pretty hastily organized. It was organized to coincide with rallies uh, in 300 cities across the country. And I think there were rallies also in Duluth and Grand Rapids. And I actually went uh, – my first stop was I, 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 I called um, a state representative, uh, Tim Miller uh, from Prinsburg, who was uh, – he has proposed laws very similar to the Alabama ban, which is a virtual ban. He's proposed very similar laws in the Minnesota legislature. And I got him. He was driving back to Prinsburg um, after, well, what it appeared just before the special session. But um, he said he's going to keep trying. His his proposals didn't get very far in the Minnesota legislature, but he proposed something very similar to the Alabama ban. So I got him. Then I stopped by Planned Parenthood and talked to the president of Planned Parenthood, Sarah Stace, and they were not sure how many people were going to turn out at this rally. And then I went to the rally, and the rally was packed. I mean, I, I, there was no official crowd estimate, but it wasn't hundreds. There were at least a couple of thousand people there uh, on, on pretty short notice, and, and they were pretty passionate and, and revved up against these laws in Alabama and Missouri and some of these other states. And what the folks at Planned Parenthood say and what they believe is happening is that people are, in fact, just what you were saying, energized and and angry about the laws in the other states and motivated to come out and actually vote. Right. And, and it was that, you know, when you go back to the 2016 election and you look back at who voted and, and um, who didn't vote mm-hmm. is you found that uh, there was a significant – there was a smaller percentage, uh, fewer Democrats voted right. uh, than had voted uh, in the elections for Barack Obama. People Correct. were not excited about Hillary Clinton, even women. Correct. And, and I think that's what they're hoping to channel this yeah, and into. I think, I think that's what's happening here because the 2018 – election results across the United States, including Minnesota, were really driven by women and especially by suburban women. Uh, and 
driven by what? You know, you know whether it's Donald Trump's comments, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby. I mean, by a perception of an incredible, you know, or it could have been the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, by a clearly very um, hostile, at least in their their perspective, of a hostile environment against women. And now these these anti-abortion laws are continuing that, continuing that. And I think this has the potential of doing something fascinating. If that for so many years you had anti-abortion activists highly motivated and showing up at the polls, um, I think now these decisions, or rather these laws across the states, are having the impact in terms of mobilizing the the, the pro-choice um, women across the country. Um, and 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 if and if that's true, if that's accurate, um, um, if if women turn out to vote in 2020 in the way they turned out to vote in 2018, this will not be good news right. for Donald Trump or for Republicans. And as opposed to 2016, um, when, when, when a lot a lot didn't turn out. But, but that that is exactly what, what the Planned Parenthood folks are actually sort of um, banging on, and they, they think it's it's happening. And, and yes. of course, we won't know right. um, for a while. But it's interesting. So you think that there's a very good chance that these, these laws will actually end up getting struck down by lower courts Correct. and then getting appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. You think that there's a chance that the U.S. Supreme Court won't take it. If they do take it, <laughs> uh-huh. and obviously this is an if, you've had and, – and I think this is something that people really don't think of when they vote for president – when you're voting for president, you're also voting for the person who can appoint a lifetime appointees mm-hmm. to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Donald Trump, in in two very short years, got two chances. That's right. That's um, right. You know, already. And, and his first term isn't even up. He, he was able to appoint Neil Gorsuch and obviously Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh being an especially controversial appointee after those unbelievable hearings. Um, it's possible he could appoint even more. I That's mean, some right. of these uh, more liberal justices are, are very senior. That's right. Um, and obviously, Ruth Bader Ginsburg suffering from cancer. She looks like she's doing really well, but she's in her 80s. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Now, let me throw one other dimension in here, too, is with these abortion decisions, is that – and we saw this happen in Kansas recently where um, the Kansas Supreme Court – came back and ruled under its own state constitution um, that abortion laws were unconstitutional and that a right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy is protected under the state constitution. And the reason why that is important is that if a state Supreme Court rules under their own constitution that a woman's right uh, a woman has a right to privacy or a right to terminate a pregnancy, the U.S. Supreme Court cannot overturn that. And that's exactly what happened in Minnesota back in the 90s, where the mm-hmm. Minnesota Supreme Court issued um, um, a case, Women of Minnesota versus Gomez, and where the court ruled, Minnesota Supreme Court said that under the Minnesota state constitution, um, women do have a right um, to basically terminate their pregnancies under some situations. And so I mention this because look to see how perhaps the politics and the, and the litigation of, of, of these abortion cases um, might produce some surprises at the state court levels in terms of how they rule also. Um, I, th- I can't remember if I've ever told you that one of the classes that I teach in law school, I actually teach state constitutional law. And so there are strategies um, in terms of how you could use 
federal litigation or state litigation or state versus federal constitutions to do certain things. And that's what we saw in Kansas a few weeks ago um, in terms of them upholding, rather, I mean, sorry, striking down um, some of the state abortion laws, um, ruling they violated the state constitution. If it did go to the Supreme Court, though, are you saying that it's not necessarily a slam dunk against abortion rights? I, I don't think it is a slam dunk well, against it because— Despite the two new conservative justices. Yeah, because it's, it, it's going to—because everybody's perceiving it's going to be 5-4— I think Roberts is very, very worried about um, the fact that this court is looking increasingly politicized. And we've already seen him in a few situations in the last couple of years um, flip and vote with the liberals out of that fear. So I'm not saying that the Supreme Court won't narrow um, um, reproductive rights, but I think it's highly unlikely they'll do a broad overturning of Roe versus Wade. Interesting. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Professor David Schultz about the legislative session that ended uh, no government shutdown. Yes, there was a special session, but it was a very brief one. Uh, more with David Schultz after this. You're listening to News Talk 830. It is 849 in the Twin Cities, as May Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. And again, a big thank you to you for uh, uh, not crashing. You must be exhausted because right now it's, what, four in the morning or something like that? It'll be close to five in the morning. Five in the morning. That's right. right. It's time to get up. Time to get up. Okay. I was going to say, you, you, you don't get much sleep on Saturday night either. I don't, yes, and I will be there bright and early at, at 6 a.m., um, also 10.30 a.m. I want to ask you about the legislative session. Uh, we did play, there was a clip uh, that's been used in, in a number of newscasts by Mark Fry of Kurt Doubt, the minority leader, the House minority leader, um, the former House Speaker, Republican, of course, saying uh, nothing got done this legislative session. I, I'm not sure that's that's true. Yeah. Some, I mean, they did get the budget done. Um, they did do some small increases for, like, let's say, like on education, a few things here. Um, um, what they didn't get done is something that I think has been frustrating the legislature for years, some kind of more global plan in terms of, of um, let's say, you know, road, road, and re- road bridges, highway reconstruction. Um, I couldn't tell by looking at it. Did they actually pass a bonding bill or not? Yes. Okay, but I think it was a pretty small one, if I, if I compare. Right, they, and they didn't get, they didn't get his da- gas tax. They got all the funding right. bills done. Right. Um, but they ha- and they did keep that medical provider tax. Although it'll, 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 not two percent, but I think one point eight. One point eight percent. So they got that. But right. I think they also did some other things. Um, I, I, I think that the distracted driving bill yes. is a big deal. I yes. mean, I, I know it's not a, a money bill, but I mean that affects everybody in the state. I think it's a big, big deal. That's a big deal. The marital rape law, I think, is significant right. also. But in terms of if we look at like the at the beginning of the legislative session, the Democrats had a list of what I think their top ten bills they wanted to pass in the House. Um, either they didn't pass, or or let's right. say a shadows of them, you know, um, skeletons of them passed. Um, um, so I don't think it's accurate to say that nothing got done. But what would be a more accurate description is to say that it was pretty ugly how it got done. Um, right. But it was it was less ugly than it has been in past years. <laughs> yes, yes, but right, you're right. Okay, um, you're right. Okay, couple couple interesting statistics here. Now, if we go back 20 years, you know, every two years, you know, in the odd years when they have to do the right. budget. Okay. Um, 
so that means in the last 20 years, there's been there's been 10 biennial sessions to do the budget. They've now had to go over time eight eight out of those 10 times. Um, um, eight out of 10 times where they had to go to special session. We've had during that time two partial government shutdowns, almost a third, and then in two other instances, we've had the governor um, and the legislature square off um, with issues that had to be resolved by the Supreme Court. Uh, I, last year, I called this the new normal, and that's what it is now. <laughs> the new normal is what? That we're going to go to overtime, you know, right. that, that things are not going to be very pretty. The part that I think was the not prettiest, that's not a good way to describe it, the least pretty thing about this session was how in the last couple of weeks, it was all done behind closed doors, and I think that's a concern. Right. Right, and and that was a criticism that that was um, leveled by Speaker or former Speaker Dowd, um, because he was shut out, uh, yep. so he he was not behind the closed doors. Um, I, they did, however, I, I think that there was a tremendous desire by the governor and and the lieutenant governor to really not take this too much into overtime. Yes, or, or yes, it went to special session. He said, oh, it's not. Well, he, he said he was calling it overtime, but to not have a government shutdown. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that was very important. Another thing I think they did, which I do think is very important, and um, I will have Senator Karen Housley on our 1030 show. There was a significant bill that, that really rewrites the um, oversight of assisted living. I mean, assisted living facilities weren't regulated or weren't, weren't um, at all in Minnesota, which is shocking. Yeah. Nursing homes were, assisted living facilities were not, and I think that's a big deal. They did get that done. They did get opioid, uh, mm-hmm. an opioid bill, which they hadn't been able to do before. So they, they were able to get a number of things done. No, it's not pretty. I, I do think, though, that the way the Minnesota system is set up with the entire Senate not being up for election in 2018. It was only the House that was up. So the Senate got to stay Republican because they weren't up. It's not clear if the Senate would have flipped, but we can, you know, that's a hypothetical there. It'll be interesting to see what happens again in 2020. And I think, and I I, I would expect we're going to see Governor Tim Walls hit the road hard. Right. Uh, especially in those Senate districts where he actually carried them and there was a Republican incumbent senator, I I, I bet we're going to see uh, Tim Walls campaigning pretty hard in those districts. I do, too. And I think we're going to see two different election cycles that are going to be important. 2020, the entire legislature is up. And then in 2022, it'll be the first elections after redistricting occurs. And keep in mind that when oh, the, that's right. when the Senate elections take place next year, they're not for four years. They're only for two years. Um, so that what will happen 2022... Minnesota's system is so complicated, it isn't is it? It is incredibly complicated, which is, which is why um, um, my classes are so much fun, because I have to make sense out of all, of all these bizarre things we do in the state. Does um, anybody else have a, a, a state Senate that, that one year is, is... No. They're elected for four years, and the next year they're voted for two years? Nope. Nope. We're the only one in the country that truncates the Senate four-year terms to two years when it gets to, like, the census. So I mentioned... Is that only on the census years? Only on the census year, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. My head hurts. (laughs) Yeah. So what's going to happen in 2022... I'm glad we have you around to... to, to, It was keeping track of this. Right. So all the legislature and, at that point, and the governor will be up in 2022. So the next two election cycles are going to be incredibly important. And, of course, in 2020, we also have what? We also have... Um, the presidential election, and 
I'm assuming Tina Smith is going to want to run again for office. She's got to run again next year. She's got to run again. So a, a lot, a lot going on. A lot to talk about for the years yes. ahead. Yes, we have, full, <laughs> we have full employment for the next few years. Okay. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz. Thank you so much for coming on. You get some rest. I'm glad you had a safe trip back from Lithuania, and, and I certainly appreciate your time. And as do all our listeners. Thank you very much. And good night to everybody. All right. Absolutely. Good night, David Schultz. Uh, Great guy for coming on after really a long trip. He's got to be absolutely exhausted. Well, listen, I just want to give a huge shout-out to the producer of this show, Susan Blanche. She does a fabulous job. I want to thank Susan for getting a great group of guests together. also want to thank um, Devin Marshall for keeping us on the air. Thank you, Devin. Uh (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, And he's got a long day. He's got to come back here and make sure that Sid Hartman and Dave Mona and that whole crew gets on the air, and that's really important. Yeah, counting down the hours. C- counting down the hours. I bet you are. Devin. To see said smiling face. <laughs> All right, folks. And again, I do want to invite you to tune into WCCO TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10:30 a.m. Uh, Senator Karen Housley, who is the author of that new bill uh, that that will regulate assisted living facilities in the state of Minnesota. It will be a live guest. Uh, I'll also ask her about whether she'll run again against Tina Smith. We don't know. But really, this is a big bill. It's very important. It's bipartisan. And so many of us now have loved ones who are in assisted living. So tune in, folks, and thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 